right, well, good morning, church, and happy Easter. It's a joy to be able to be with you this morning. Um, the fact that we could not do this last year, I think, um, just makes this morning just all that much sweeter, right? Uh, it, you know, as you consider just the Easter story, one of the things that is um, so remarkable, and hopefully for us is uh, an invitation into the story, is the reality that as a Christian people, we are a people who, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is described a, a people of living hope. That no matter what you've been through, not to downplay or make it seem like that's not significant, but no matter what suffering or what your year has looked like, and we all know this year has not looked like what any of us would have wanted. Um, but in light of even that, that we can come together this morning, even in the midst of great suffering and pain and trial and difficulty and challenge, and we have reason to celebrate and to have joy because we are a people of a living hope. And all of that hope is contingent on the fact that the tomb is empty, is still empty today, right? And so this morning as we come together, we're going to look at uh, the narrative of the resurrection as Ronnie read there just a few minutes ago out of Matthew 28. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to, to uh, turn there. Um, and since it's read, I'm just going to, already been read, I'm just going to pray for us and we'll just get started. So um, again, I'm just so glad that you're here. Just want to um, welcome you and make sure that no matter where you're coming from, um, if you're online or in person, um, the fact that you're here, we're very glad. We're very glad you're here to, to participate in this Easter together. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning um, to reflect on the reality of the resurrection. Lord, we do pray that right now as we consider your word in Matthew 28, Lord, that you would use your word this morning, which is eternal and true, and that you would write it on our hearts and use it to shape us as your people. Lord, we love you, and uh, it's such a tremendous joy to be able to come and celebrate the reality of the resurrection. Um, just pray that you would speak to us now, just in the next few minutes, from your word. We love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, in January of 2007, Steve Jobs stood before a packed house in his famous Mac, note, Mac World keynote, and he started his presentation by declaring this. He said, every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Jobs went on to say that actually today he was introducing three products that would do just that promise revolution. The first product was a widescreen iPod with touch controls. Sounds awesome, right? The second product was a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third product was a breakthrough internet communications device. At the expense of having a little fun with his audience, Steve went on for a few minutes and eventually said that actually these are not what's making this event so remarkable as this is not actually three revolutionary products he's introducing, but one breakthrough revolutionary product, the iPhone. Now, the iPhone would spark not just a mobile revolution, but also a technological revolution. And in many ways, that I would say that Jobs nor Apple had, had in any way of fully anticipating what would happen. So much so that between 2007 and 2018, some 2.2 billion iPhones were sold. 2.2 billion iPhones. In 2018, they simply stopped releasing statistics. But just imagine, I mean... The amount of iPhones, I would say that the, the iPhone has revolutionized the world so much that it's likely that this Easter morning, the number one distraction over the next couple of minutes for you is likely not the potential or the promise of an Easter egg hunt. It is likely not the thoughts of a beautifully glazed 
ham that will wait for you after this. It, the, the, the number one distraction is likely not, this is Iowa, a casserole that's on the other side of church service. We're calling your name. I would be willing to wager that the number one distraction for you this morning is likely this revolutionary product, the iPhone. It has completely transformed our world, turned the world upside down in ways that, like I said before, I, I guarantee you neither Jobs nor Apple had fully anticipated. Well, in Jesus' day, first century Israel was littered with dozens of messianic movements, all of which shared similar revolutionary aspirations. However, every, nearly every one of these revolutionaries would meet in a similar fate to what Jesus met on that tree in Golgotha. The way to squash the revolution was to kill the revolutionary himself. And once that would happen, all of those followers would scatter, they would go home, there would be no revolution. And that's how it happened, except for one movement. One movement did not follow that same pattern. In fact, when they attempted to kill this revolution, this revolutionary, the complete opposite happened. Rather than collapsing the revolution and people scattering, rather than that happening, the revolution took root and exploded throughout the ancient Near East, transformed the entire world. Just like Apple's 2007 Macworld keynote would set in motion a mobile revolution, the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection would set in motion a revolution that would completely turn the world on its head. It would spread throughout the Roman Empire and become the greatest shaping influence of our Western world as we know it. This movement would change and influence so much, and, and so much of it would change and it would hinge on the event specifically of that very first Easter morning, the discovery of an empty tomb. What we'll see this morning is that the resurrection does not just have a tremendous historical significance, and it does, as you just consider history and how history has been altered as a result. The resurrection does not just bear in its, of, of itself tremendous historical significance. It also has deeply personal significance. And what we'll see just as we look at Matthew 28 is that the discovery of the resurrection demands a response. For everyone who, like these ladies on the first Easter morning, peer into an empty tomb and see no body, it demands a response. So as we just look at Matthew 28, the first thing that we're going to look, like, look at, verses 1 to 10, is resurrection discovered. We're told that as daylight dawns in the text on the third day, that the women arrive at the tomb. We're told in a different account of Mark and Luke that, that these women brought spices. They were, they were coming to tend to the body, hopes that there would be some way of them carrying out their tradition, their, 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 their way of caring for the dead, grieving properly. What they were not expecting to stumble across was the discovery that would change the course of the world. And they get there and instead they find, instead of Jesus' body and the guards guarding it, instead they find that the, the tomb has been, the stone has been rolled back. There is nobody. The other gospels tell us that they saw his grave clothes lying there, his face cloth neatly folded where his body had laid. A remarkable and unexpected discovery. Jesus was gone. These women had just discovered a revolutionary event. Notice who makes the discovery. It's no small thing. In fact, it's incredibly significant that, that it's women that are at the very center 
the closest to Jesus at a crucial point once again in the passion story. The disciples, men who had com committed their faithfulness and their loyalty to their leader, have now abandoned and left. But these women remain faithful. They, they want to care for their leader. In verse 2, we're told that, that there's an earthquake. The chronological sequence is unclear if it happens just before the women arrive or, or possibly as they view the tomb. Not clear if they witnessed the angel rolling away the stone or, or how it might relate to the earthquake. But one thing is clear, and it's important to keep in mind, that the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus' body could come out. The stone, rather, was rolled away so that the women could go in and see that there was no body. The angel's message is, is really quite interesting when you think about it. This is the most significant event in all of human history. And we don't know precisely how it happens. We don't know how the resurrection actually happens. The angel's emphasis is on what happened and what they ought to do as a response of what happened. He simply says, he has risen. That's the explanation he gives. In the Greek, in the original language, this would have been one word, a simple message. He is risen. This simple message, as simple as it is, is at the very center. It is the source of all Christian hope. The hope for humanity. Christ has risen. Death has been defeated. The grave itself, death itself has been conquered. Listen, here's the deal. If the resurrection did not happen then we're wasting our time here. As cute as y'all look, and y'all look pretty cute this morning, all right? As cute as y'all look, this is a complete waste of time. If the resurrection did not happen, we can close up shop and go home right now. If the resurrection did not happen, then Jesus himself becomes just a guy that, that, that had some really wonderful things to say. That did some pretty cool stuff. That got a following. Got some people to follow him. And really, if the resurrection did not happen, then, then the whole story of the Bible just becomes a story that kind of helps shape morality. Jesus, a great guy with some wonderful things to say. And that is it. But if the resurrection actually happened, if the tune was actually empty, then it changes everything. How do you explain this? Such a significant event. You have to do something with the empty tomb. Remember, the tombstone was rolled away so we could look in, so the women could look in and consider the resurrection. And the reality is for us, we're faced with the same sort of invitation. This tomb rolled away, the stone rolled away from the tomb is an opportunity for us to consider the resurrection. And here's what's really important to keep in mind. There are no, as we observe and consider the resurrection, there are no casual observers. Uh, one of my favorite places to go, go there every now and then is Montana. It's beautiful, beautiful. I can remember as a, as a little boy watching the, the movie A River Runs Through It and just had a, just a love for that area. Just gorgeous, gorgeous scenery. The, just the glory of God's creation on display. And when we go there every now and then, we'll drive and it's just like you can kind of turn a corner and it's just like, like unbelievable how gorgeous it is, right? And you just want to stop and just take in the beauty. Well, guess what? I don't know if you knew this, but there's actually people who, who live in Montana. 
There's people who live there, okay? And, and for those people, it's just it's like, oh my gosh, can you imagine waking up like on Tuesday and just like opening your window and like God's creation and like full glory just like waiting for you? I mean, it's the same, I guess, in Iowa, but some of you maybe not so convinced. Um, it's beautiful, right? And just imagine living in Montana and seeing that every single day. I mean, while we pull over and are, we're all like, oh my gosh, this is gorgeous. There's people who just drive by and for them, it's just nothing. And the temptation, the fear for us, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, the temptation can be that the resurrection becomes like that, I don't know what you call a person who lives in Montana. Montanian, I don't know what they are. But somebody who lives in Montana who just... The reality of God's beauty and his glory and creation just becomes stale and just becomes like a normal Tuesday. There are no casual observers of the resurrection. What you'll see is that as people discover and can, are confronted with the reality of the resurrection, their lives are changed forever. Or they aren't. Really what we'll see is that there's two ways that you can respond to the resurrection. The first one we see in verse Verses 11 through 15. And this is the response simply of unbelief. The women leave, we're told, to go tell the disciples they encounter Jesus and they, they worship him, fall at his feet. And the story shifts back to that of the guards. The men, likely Roman soldiers, who must now also give a report. They also have to go and tell what happened. But a very different reaction than the women. The women are filled with excitement and, and joy. At the, at the possibility of Jesus being uh, alive. These men likely are filled with confusion and, and fear. They're, they're probably terrified that they're not just going to lose their jobs, but they'll also likely lose their lives because they could not do their job. So as they go and report, in an ironic twist, the same guards who were charged with protecting the tomb and preventing a resurrection hoax now have been enlisted in spreading a resurrection hoax. Bribes have been given, and they are to go and tell that, hey, let's just explain this thing away. Let, let's just come up with a story. What happened to Jesus' body? They say his followers stole his body. And we're told that that's a, a story that they began to spread and that, that took tra got traction and spread throughout the day. Somebody stole his body. Here's what, as they are as they are considering the exact same thing that those women, as they're confronted with the resurrection, what the guards and the priests, as they concoct this hoax, what they are trying to do is, is here's the truth, they have no human category to explain what happened. So their option is to suppress the truth and explain it away. To make the empty tomb fit into a category that they can get their human minds around. So... They stole his body. And this is, this is not an unusual claim against the resurrection or, or explanation of the resurrection. In fact, it's, it's one of the stories that continues to this day. That some think, maybe there's some here who think that his body was simply stolen. And there's a number of stories that, again, take, get traction throughout history that, that exist to this day. His body was stolen is one of them. Now, remember that if you were to read the book of Matthew, one of the things that you'll see over and over again is that these disciples, a theme that keeps coming up is their incompetency, right? The fact that they're not skilled soldiers, that they're actually men. You just want to be like, guys, get it together. And so this story would require these men who are incompetent to outmaneuver, outwit the Roman guard and to get Jesus's body out of the tomb. 
It's really a remarkable claim. And the fact that no, none of these disciples, if they really had done this, created a hoax and stolen the body, this, this story would ultimately cost them their life. None of them recant. It's a hard one to believe. Another one that's common that gets a lot of traction is that they went to the wrong tomb. So the idea is that the women simply arrived at the wrong tomb and the tomb would belong to somebody else. And then they, you know, that was the problem is that the, Jesus was actually crucified, never rose from the dead. The women just went to the wrong tomb. But if you just let that play out, what that means is that not just did the women go to the wrong tomb, but they went and got their disciples who, who then came and looked in the tomb themselves and they went to the wrong tomb as well. And it doesn't just mean the women went to the wrong tomb. It doesn't just mean that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. It would also require the Roman guards, you guessed it, to be guarding the wrong tomb. Highly unlikely. And if that was really what happened, then all you would have to do to shut the movement down is go to the right tomb and say, here's the body. All right, y'all were wrong. It's a wrap. But that doesn't happen. Another theory that picks up traction is that there was sort of this hallucination, that the disciples um, were really grieving and they were filled with pain. And so in their grief and trauma of witnessing Jesus, their Savior, their leader, murdered, that they had sort of hallucinated. It was a desire that they wanted him to be with them and to continue to lead and to guide them. And, and the resurrection was just a story that was really the product of a hallucination. Again, this is a stretch, people. This is a stretch because what this would require is that, well, that these 11 disciples would all have a similar hallucination. And not just these 11 disciples, but also the 500 witnesses who said, we saw Jesus alive. They would have also had to have a similar hallucination. I mean, talk about a trip, right? Fourth possible explanation that is often used is that that people actually mistook Jesus for being dead. And I would say, this is, this is really common, especially in certain parts of the world, that Jesus never actually died. Many who hold this story today claim that Jesus went to the cross, but instead of dying, he was badly hurt, lost consciousness, at which time the guards, having thought him dead, removed him from the cross and buried him. Now, in order for this to be a possibility, what does it require? It requires that Jesus, having gone through, remember, six trials, no sleep, a brutal scourging, thorns pounded into his head, nails in his hands and feet, a spear thrust into his side, Jesus wrapped in grave clothes and placed in a tomb, that this same Jesus, having gone through all of that now from within the tomb, is able to get the tombstone out of the way so he can slip past those guards and make an escape. Once again, hopefully you see, that is highly unlikely. Now when you consider the implausibility of these explanations, which really have been the main ones to have any sort of traction over the last 2,000 years, you must consider the alternative that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And that doesn't fit neatly in our human categories. But it's the truth. Now, Tim Keller is a, a popular uh, former pastor, current author. And uh, oftentimes he's famous for, before his, uh, during his Easter services, he will, he will say, even if you can't believe the resurrection. So if you're here this morning, and, and the historical evidence has been one that has been a barrier for you to, to, you know, I just can't believe that this happens. I want to explain it away or have it fit neatly into my human categories. 
He would say, even if you can't believe in the resurrection, you should at least want it to be true. You should at least want it to be true. Why would he say that? Why would he say, even if you're having a hard time believing in the resurrection, you should want it to be true? Well, I think he's making an assumption. His assumption is that his audience cares about things like justice for the poor. He's assuming that the people he's talking to are, are concerned about things like alleviating hunger and disease. He's assuming that the people he's talking to care for, for the most vulnerable in our society. Or at least they like the idea of caring for the most vulnerable in our society. And maybe, maybe safest assumption at all, he's assuming that his audience desires deep from within things like purpose and meaning and hope. And I think it's a pretty safe assumption. And because of that assumption, even if you're having a hard time believing in the resurrection, you should want it to be true. Because the resurrection is a source, the source of living hope. It's the reason why we as a people have hope. Two ways. One, in the next life. The reality of the resurrection causes us to, to have hope that this is not all that there is. And that death, as strong as it looks, as scary as it sounds, does not have to be the end of my story. That there is something greater than this world. It, it gives us hope in the next life. But the second thing it does is it gives us hope in this life. We can have a hope in the life that we live right here and right now. That we don't have to be defined by our challenges or our sin or our fears. We don't have to be defined by our mistakes. But rather, he invites us to participate in his resurrected life right here and right now. And what you'll see is, is as the disciples take hold of that hope, it doesn't just transform their lives. It does, be sure of that. But it causes them to be agents of transformation everywhere that they step on planet Earth. It does the exact same thing for us today. The cross puts to death the old way of life. Jesus' empty tomb exchanges new life in place of the old. We can live in light of the reality of heaven right here, right now. I mean, the truth is, this has been a hard year, right? If ever there has been a year where we desperately need hope, where we've been isolated, where issues of politics and race have caused great division within our nation and even our church, we find ourselves longing for something that will unite us. And the resurrection promises to do that which nothing else can offer. And praise be to God because of it. So there's, a, that's, there's one way to respond. Unbelief. Explain it away. Suppress the truth. Fit it into a human category. Okay, not the, not the way I would recommend going. Okay? I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. There ain't much to that, that path. I'll just be honest. Okay? So what's the alternative? Well, the only other alternative we see in 16 to 20 is that of belief. That of belief. 
So what does belief look like? What is the life of somebody who responds to the, who stares into the empty tomb and believes in the resurrection? What should their life look like? I'll just give you three words that are helpful. Just, this is a, one of my favorite passages, but we don't want to exhaust it. This one, don't have time to exhaust it this morning. Three words that help you think about the life of belief. First one is worship. Somebody who considers the resurrection and believes they should be a person who worships Jesus. Look at verse 17. We, we learn how the disciples respond when they encounter Jesus. We're told that, that when they saw him, they worshiped him. Matthew is telling us something absolutely critical. These men, these Orthodox Jews who are well-versed in Scripture, if there's one thing they know is that you don't worship anything that is not God. It's their first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But here, on this hillside, at this time, as they're encountering the risen Jesus Christ, they throw themselves down in worship. It tells us they believe him to be precisely who he declared himself to be, the living God. This is the first thing that we ought to do as we consider the resurrection, that we are a people who, who are walking down the path of belief and faith. We are a people who do the exact same thing. We throw our, our, our lives down at the feet of Jesus and worship him for who he is. Recognize him for who he is and worship him with all that we have. We are a worshiping people. Second thing that we see is that a life of belief is, is, yes, it's characterized by worship, but we also see in this passage that there is, a, there is a, a glimpse of weakness. There's a glimpse of weakness in the life of these men. The next three words in verse 17, are, they're really amazing. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, this is not what you would expect to be in a narrative, trying to make a defense for the resurrection. Why would some doubt it? Some of these disciples, we're told, are hesitant to offer their worship. They're, they're struggling with doubt. Why in the world would Matthew choose to include these three words? Well, two reasons. One, because it's true. So, you know, put it in there, right? It's true. It actually happened. And two, because it shows that there is within the disciples themselves, these men of belief, these men that God has called to himself, that there is weakness that they are not a finished product, so to speak. These men with the risen Savior standing in front of them, Jesus in front of them, and they're still doubting. These men are in very different places. Some are worshiping, some are doubting. Their faith has them in different places. And this is really a picture of what it looks like to be the church. The reality is we come here this morning, none of us are finished products. Some of us are struggling with doubt. Some of us have fears and anxieties. And we ought to do the exact same thing. Bring them to the feet of Jesus. Because he's the only one who can do anything about them. It shows that there's weakness within these disciples. These disciples are men. The, the word that's used here, doubt, is the same word to describe Peter's faith in Matthew 14 earlier in the story. When Jesus appears to the disciples walking on the water, maybe you're familiar with this, and as, as Peter walks out towards Jesus, he begins to, to think of the wind, and he's aware suddenly of what he's actually doing. And as he takes his sight off of Jesus, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is exactly what some of these disciples are experiencing. 
They see Jesus for the first time after the resurrection, and some of them are struggling with doubt and hesitation. The final picture that Matthew gives us of Jesus' closest, closest followers is a drawing near to him is that they're in different places in their faith, and so are we. I love the fact that, that Jesus comes to them and that they're all together. And it's a reminder for us that if you are trying to walk this path of faith and belief, that the truth is you really need to do it in the context of a community. You need brothers and sisters around you who are likewise in different places in their faith to be a source of, of strength and encouragement. We would love nothing more for you if, you, if you have never been here before, we would love nothing more to, to, to be a part of this community. What we can't promise is that we've got it all figured out. What we can't promise is that your life's going to be just fine moving forward. Jesus doesn't promise that either. The reality is this life is filled with bumps and hurdles and pains and obstacles. And you would, it would just not make much sense to try and march that path, walk that path by yourself. We would love for you to be connected here. There's in your front of your seat, there's a little connect card. If you have a chance, if you're new, we would love to get you connected to walk this journey with other Christians. That's a way for you to do that. There's a box in the back. You can drop it in there. Finally, so we see that the life of, of belief looks like worship. It's the reality of being honest with our weaknesses. And finally, we see that it also looks like giving witness. So worship, weakness, witness. This is the setting, these men struggling to believe, in which Jesus entrusts the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This commission to go and make disciples, he sends them out to bear witness. This is what you've seen. I'm alive. Your job, go tell others that Jesus is risen. It's changed your life. It will change your life. And now you, as a change agent, go and spread the good news of the gospel, making disciples who do the exact same thing. Give their worship to Jesus, who are real in their weakness and bring it before Christ, and who bear witness out of obedience and faith to Jesus. And what we know is that these men did just this. With no money and no building, he sent them into a world to be witnesses to be his church. We find out in Acts 17:6 later on as the story continues that the early church was so committed to this mission of making disciples that the pe people of Thessalonica that when they, these men came into town they said these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. So just in a few years, there's, there's people around their region who are recognizing that there is a revolution that has started. And our response is we can, we can suppress it or we can lean into it and be a part of this revolution. I can only imagine the amount of distractions and difficulties that the disciples faced between Matthew 28 and Acts 17. Yet they were committed to what Jesus called them to. And the best part of all is Jesus had committed to them the greatest thing that they needed, his very presence. And it's the exact same thing that he gives us access to right here and now this morning. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is a living God and he makes himself available to us. Folks, there's no greater news. There is nothing that can change the world like that reality. 
told you at the beginning that Jobs had sort of launched a revolution of his own through the innovation of the iPhone. What's well, interesting, because when he presented the iPhone, his main sort of selling features, his main sort of selling features were sort of two things. Listen to music, make phone calls, one device. Now here's the deal. I'd be willing to wager. So he kind of had fun with it. He you know, kind of put that, that. They used to have phones that you'd turn things to make calls. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Praise be to God. Okay. So here's the deal. What, why do I point that out? Well, here's, here's the reality. My guess is most of you, if you have an iPhone or a phone that's like a wannabe iPhone, whatever, um, that you likely used your phone some 85 times before you came to church today. Let's just be honest. It's a reality, okay? Probably checked it, used it in some way, shape, or form. I'd be willing to bet that of those 85 times that you, like, looked at this thing, maybe two of them were to do one of those two things. You know, I don't, I, I don't know the last time I even opened the iTunes feature on my phone and listened to downloaded music. You know what I'm saying? And, and phone calls, some of y'all don't return no phone calls. Shoot, you know like, I've texted you a million times, but we've never actually talked on the phone, you know? So these two, sometimes that's me, too. I'll just be honest, all right? Two features I don't use real well. This confession is a safe place. See, here's the deal. Steve Jobs and Apple had no idea the power that they were unleashing into the world and how Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat would latch onto that and just let it ride. And that you'd be some, you know, here Easter morning taking pictures and posting them and sharing them all over the place. It doesn't require you to call anybody. And you certainly ain't listening to any music while you're doing it. Jobs and Apple had no idea the power that they were unleashing into the world. Now, I would be willing to wager that many of us, if you're here today and you're a Christian, oftentimes forget the power that we have because of the resurrection. Sam Albrea, a famous author right now, says that oftentimes Christians are guilty of taking the resurrection out once a year, dusting it off, celebrating it, and then sticking it back into a drawer. Well, here's, here's the deal. If we want to be the type of people who lean into the revolution, who participate in God's transformative work and see our community turned upside down, because of the gospel, then that cannot be a description of what we do with the resurrection. The resurrection for us is the source of hope. It gives us direction and purpose and meaning in all of life. When you stare into the empty tomb, the fact of the matter is you can never be the same. It's just not an option. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, if you're here... Um, which of those paths best describes you? How have you responded to the resurrection? In unbelief or in belief? And if you'd say, I believe in the resurrection, then I would simply ask you, does your life show it? It, it looks like for these men, joyous worship, reality of their weaknesses, and a commitment to make disciples of all nations. Let that be what defines and describes us as a people. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you so much for um, the fact that we get to gather here this morning some 2,000 years later, and uh, we get to celebrate, and we get to worship something that is not a lie.
but that is a reality. That Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Lord, and I pray that that reality would transform us and that we would be people who, who recognize the power that is at our disposable, disposal because of the resurrection. Help us to be a people who, who, who walk and live every single day recognizing that your presence is with us and in us, that we are a new creation, that the old has passed away and that the new has come. Lord, and let us be a people who lean into the revolution, not explain it away. We love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.